There we go. Good morning again. What a great time of, of fellowship, of communion. Communion at its basic intent, its basic heart, is fellowship. Fellowship with Lord Jesus Christ, fellowship with each other. Even though we are not able to be in each other's physical presence, we can still worship together as the body of Christ apart during this time. Now, John, as most of you know, John has been trying to get across to us who Jesus Christ is. If you remember from John's prologue, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, John has been showing us different aspects of the nature of Jesus Christ. And now he's been doing this for the specific purpose. And the great thing about the book of John, the gospel of John, is that he gives us his purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that that by believing you may have life in his name. John's writing this as an evangelical book so that you would believe. And he's been laying out reasons for you to believe so far, and he will continue to, and he will exhaust himself with reasons for you to believe in Jesus Christ. And now we've seen so far that Jesus Christ is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and is God. He's the creator of all things. All things came into being by him and through him. He is the life. He's the origin of life. There is no life without Christ. There is no sustaining of life without Jesus Christ. And he is the light. The light that shines in the darkness bringing truth and revelation to men. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is no truth in this world. Then John lays out the witness. And last week we talked about the witness of of John the Baptist. And how John was the greatest man who ever lived as Jesus describes him. And in John's account, he lays out the, the first week of Jesus Christ, John the Apostle. And we see this in verses 19 and onward. We have the first week, the, the public ministry of Jesus. John the Apostle, who's writing this, gives us John the Baptist's account, or account of John the Baptist. And in this account, he confesses that Jesus Christ is the one that's coming. Just go ahead and get it. Might as well. (laughs) And so, John the Baptist confesses that he is not the Christ. He is not the Messiah. And so, He points to Christ. And then you have the great declaration that John the Baptist makes as he sees Jesus Christ in verse 29 on on day 2. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not what the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting a coming king in the sense of a Messiah who's going to be a political ruler. But John testifies. He testifies about who Jesus Christ is. You know, one of the favorite things of of mine is when I I sit with you and and I talk with those folk in the church about their their testimonies, about hearing how they they came to Jesus Christ. It just warms my heart to to hear all the variety of ways that Jesus Christ has, has brought us to himself. And I, and I just love sharing these stories, these, these testimonies with families in the church and just hearing what God has done in our lives. It just it brings a joy to my heart. And then when you think about it, at some point in our lives, we, we receive that call to, to come and see Jesus. Now, for some of us, it was, a, it was a continual call by those in our families as we, as we grew up to just come and see Jesus. Come and look at Him. Come and understand Him. But for some of us, it was a, a clarion call. When we were adults, 
by friends or even family members that, that point us to Jesus Christ and say, look, come and see, come and investigate who He is, what He's done. Come and investigate, come and see His claims. Because there's a big difference. There's a big difference about knowing facts about Jesus and knowing Him as Lord and as our Savior. Coming to Jesus changes you changes your what you love it changes the direction the the pursuit the goals the trajectory of your life it changes even your pleasures what you what you enjoy coming to Jesus changes your life forever think back on my own life and I I thought when I entered university that I would I would go to be a history teacher or a history professor and and, and dabble in archaeology on the side, and I had these, these plans, and the Lord changed those plans. He called me to Himself, reoriented my life, and called me to serve Him, preach, and teach His Word. Jesus alters our lives forever. For many of you, you, you can think back and, and see how Jesus has altered your life. He's changed your life. The trajectory. As we'll see today, we'll look at these first converts, these first calling of these disciples, and we'll see that Jesus forever changed the trajectory of their lives. It all began with Jesus' words to, to come and see. And we're going to see really two aspects this morning. John wants us to see really two aspects to Jesus' call to these believers. The first thing that John, excuse me, first thing that John wants you to see is he wants you to see Jesus' invitation. There's an invitation to, to come and see. We're going to see that in verses 38 through 42. And then there's also, John wants you to see Jesus' declaration. Declaration about who he is. And we're going to see that. Verses 43 through 51. And so basically you see Jesus' invitation to come and see, and then Jesus' declaration that you will see. And it forms a bookend for this section. Now when you think about John, and you think about John's writing this, and you think about the fact that he was one of John the Baptist, too many Johns, John the Baptist's disciples, and you see... They responded. If you remember last week, John the Baptist was a voice crying out in the wilderness, and he cried out with two of his disciples in verse 36, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, and he's addressing these disciples individually as he sees Jesus, and they hear him in verse 37. They heard his voice, and they responded. And what did they do? They followed Jesus. And in verse 38, Jesus turned and he saw them and he said to them, What do you seek? What do you seek? These are the first words of the Word. These are the first words of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. And he asked, What do you seek? What do you want? There's three times in the book of John that this phrase is used, and each time when it's used, it is followed by some sort of revelation. In John 18, verse 4, they were coming to Jesus to arrest him, and it says, So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, and went forth, and he said to them, Whom do you seek? And they responded by falling down on their faces. At the sound of his voice. And they got up and he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they fell down. In John 20, 15, you have a woman weeping at Jesus' tomb. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then he revealed himself to her. So these three times in the book of John are, are, are ripe with revelatory experience for those that are there to hear Jesus' question. And there's a symbolic element, because as John's writing this, he knows what's coming. We know what's coming, because if you've ever read the book of John before, you know what's coming. And he says, come and see. 
So Jesus is asking that basic question for all of those in the world. Come and see. And he says, what do you seek? What do you want in life? What's your motivation? What do you pursue after? He's asking these disciples, what do you really want with me? The other day we went to shops and my daughter saw this four foot by three foot Barbie dollhouse. This thing was massive. Now she starts trying to pull it off the shelf and the box itself is bigger than she is. And she's, and she's saying, Dada, I want this. And I'm like, Addie, you need to calm down. And then she goes, but Dada, I want this. I want it. She says it real loud. Now we had to pull her aside and and say, Addie, you know, we've been talking to you about thankfulness, right? And being grateful for what you've had and what you got and what God has given us. But she says, but Dada, I want this. You know, my, my daughter is just a picture of our own human hearts, right? We've learned not to say that out loud because we don't want people to, to think less of us. But we still say the same thing in our hearts. We, we want something. You want to see what you want? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your, your finances? The things that God has given you? Well, Jesus' question here is a, is a probing question. What do you seek? What do you want? And to, this, to their credit, they didn't just want a few simple answers from Jesus. They asked Him, they said to him, Rabbi, which shows great respect, but they said, Rabbi, which is translated teacher in verse 38, where are you staying? Right? They, they knew that the questions that they had would take more than a few minutes. They were seekers. Right? They, their hearts had been prepared by God. Right? Remember, they were already disciples of John the Baptist. They had already confessed their sins. They didn't accept the standard Jewish argument that because we're Abraham's descendants, we're okay. Because we perform the sacrifices, we're righteous. They understood because they've been baptized by John the Baptist, that, that they were sinners and they were repenting of their sins. Their hearts had been prepared by John the Baptist, which was his purpose. And they were, they were ready to hear. They, they, were, they were questioning. And the minute they heard, behold, the Lamb of God, they wanted to know more. So they come to Jesus and they say, and he says, what do you want? What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, we, where are you staying? And the thing about a rabbi is a rabbi would, would accumulate learners. And these learners would, would learn from him. And he would be a spiritual teacher, a, a scriptural advisor. And now the word for learner in the Greek is disciple. They wanted to be his disciples. They wanted to, to learn from him. Come, where are you staying, Lord? Where are you staying, Rabbi? Excuse me. And he says, come and see. You want answers? You want to know more? You want to know spiritual truth? Come and see. What a great statement. That's why I've titled my sermon, Come and See, because Jesus condescends. Here you have the, the God of creation saying, you want to know spiritual truth. You want to know more what it means for, uh, for, for me? You want me to explain what it means to be the Lamb of God? Then come and see. And He always condescends. Christ condescends to those that are humble at heart. He makes Himself available to these men. And He makes Himself available. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I'm hungry. He says, come and see. Come and, and investigate, right? We need to understand that word see is, is not like we're going to look at something. It's like somebody hands you a book and says, here, see what I've been reading. They, they don't mean literally look at the words on the page. They mean investigate it. Take time to understand it. And Jesus says, come and see. Oh, it reminds me of Matthew Oh, chapter 1, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never met the Savior. He invites you. Leave the restless, hopeless life behind and, and come and see Jesus. Understand who He is. Understand that He's the Lamb of God that forgives sins, that reconciles men through His sacrificial death. Humble yourself. Confess your sins like John and Andrew. Repent and believe in His name that you will be saved. And you will. Come and see. If you do know Jesus, just remember that His invitation to you is open every morning. I love what Jesus says to His disciples at the end of the book of John. And He says in verse... 12 of chapter 21, he says, come and have breakfast. What a great invitation. They've been, they've been fishing early in the morning, and he says, come and have breakfast. I like to think about that as, a, as I go to the Word of God daily, that I want to come and have breakfast with Jesus and, and be fed, not just with my normal physical food, but be fed with the nourishment for my soul. So come and see, Jesus says. Come, come. What a great statement. Come and see. And, and what did they do? And they stayed with him. Verse 39, for, for it was about the 10th hour. Now the Jews reckoned time from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. roughly. They did sunrise to sunset. Obviously winter days, the, 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 uh, the daylight would be shorter. But they, they still reckoned it from daylight to sunset, from sunrise to sunset. So this was roughly about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It was probably getting dark. It was around January so it was winter time, not like here it is in Oz, where it gets dark at 9.30. And so it was getting dark, and they stayed with him. It was, the end, it was getting towards the end of the day. And remember the, the, the fact that there's an eyewitness, and as John, John, John pegs the hour, right? So John's offering this, this slight little proof, like you can believe what I'm saying. I'm even giving you the hour we went and stayed with Jesus. And so... They stayed overnight. Wow, can you imagine those conversations? You reckon you would have been like, sorry, Jesus, I'm getting a little tired. I've got to go to sleep or it's getting a little late. Maybe we can have a snack. I mean, can you imagine the questions that they asked him? Right? No, after hearing John the Baptist's statement about the, him and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... Wow, what, 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 what an awesome uh, conversation they must have had that, that, that lasted... Throughout the night, sleep would have been the last thing on my mind. But look at now in verse 40. One of the two heard John speak, John the Baptist speak, and he followed him, followed Christ, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Well, you've got to remember when John is writing this that, that Peter was already well established. Everybody knew who Peter was, and from this point on, Andrew was always Simon Peter's brother. For those of you that or second or third born, maybe you know what this feels like, but this was, this was Andrew. But what did Andrew do? Right? Andrew heard, he got, got done hearing Jesus, and the, the first thing that he did, the first thing that he did, verse 41, he found first his own brother Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. You see, the first thing that they did is, the first thing that Andrew did is went out and he, and he wanted to share this important news. So obviously his conversations went well with Jesus through the night. And it convinced him of, of the person of Jesus Christ. Andrew's convinced. Wow, and he, he found the Messiah. And you'll see this over and over when these words find. You, here you see that verse 41, Andrew says, I found, well, he found his brother, excuse me. And he says, we found the Messiah. And then in verse 43, he, uh, they found Philip. And then Philip found Nathanael. And Jesus found Philip. You'll see this over and over and over. Finding people. Right? It reminds me of Matthew 13, 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all he had. And he bought it. You see, they found the most important thing 
in their lives. And that's Jesus Christ. And nothing else compares. He changes their life from this point on. They never go back to being what they were. That's what happens when you, when you come into contact with Jesus Christ. He changes you. Right? You either harden your heart against Him, and you reject Him, or you repent. You confess your sins and you believe that He is who He says He is. You believe that He is the Son of God. You see, they, they, they believed. Andrew believed and he said, we have found the Messiah. The Messiah is a transliteration. It means the anointed one. right? And John actually, for those Greeks, sorry, those Jews, most Jews only spoke and read Greek. Only the, um, the Pharisees and those that were strenuous with the law spoke Hebrew. So he translated, he said it translated Christ. It means Christ in the Greek. You know, coming home from um, actually a footy game yesterday, we were driving home from Port Adelaide and I passed by this church and, and I saw the, the title of the church and it said, Jesus, the anointed one church. Now, technically they're right. That's correct. Because Christ or Messiah means anointed one. But grammatically speaking, it would have been so much better if they had, if they had just said something along the lines of uh, the church of Jesus Christ, right? Instead of making it really wordy. Now, I don't know anything about this church. But, but tell you what, if next time you're at your family gatherings or for Christmas, you want to shake up everybody a little bit, just start referring to Jesus the Christ. Because so often we think about Christ as, as Jesus' last name. Right? As, as if that's, that's his name, Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Christ. That's a title. Like saying Jesus the Messiah. So shake up your, your family gatherings a little bit and see what people do and how they respond when you go, Jesus the Christ in your prayers or in your conversations. Jesus the Christ. At least give you an opportunity to explain why you say it, right? Well, this is his, his title. And now in the Old Testament, there's three types of people, three types of individuals that are anointed by God. There's prophets, there's priests, and then there's the king. And now the book of Hebrews tells us and shows us that that Jesus fulfills all aspects of this. So in a literal sense, he is the anointed one. Now would the disciples have fully understood this at this time? No. But guess what? Jesus says later that you will see. They will grow in their understanding of who Jesus is. And John's laying this out at the beginning because he wants you to see that that these early eyewitnesses, these, these early disciples, they confessed very early on that Jesus was the Christ. He is the Messiah. And John wants you to believe. You can trust these men at the very beginning. And notice what Jesus says when Peter is found. He said, oh, Andrew brings, in verse 42, Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him. The word there is look, is to examine, to thoughtfully stare at, if you want to put it like that. And Jesus says, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And here John the Apostle adds this tidbit, which is translated Peter, right? So, so Jesus studied Peter for a second, sorry, excuse me, studied Simon for a second, and he says, you will be called Peter. Now, as we all know, and as we will see, even in more depth as we go through the book of John, Simon wasn't Peter at the beginning, right? He wasn't, Peter means rock, the rock. You know, Simon, Simon wasn't a rock for a large part of his life. He was, he was impetuous, right? He was, uh, he was quick to make decisions. He was rash. He was all those things. But he grew. He grew into the rock. And so when Jesus declares Peter the rock at the beginning, he's declaring what he will be, what Jesus is going to make him into. When you think about your own life, Think about where you started, and you see what God has done in your life. Do you have a greater awareness of your own sin? You should. Right? Do you have a, a greater understanding of who Christ is as you grow? Yes, you should. Right? We understand. Do you have a greater love for others? Yes, 
Do you have a greater love for Christ? Yes, those are, those are things that God works in our hearts and our lives to, to conform us to His image, to make us into the person He wants us to be. Praise God, we're not the first people, or sorry, not the people we first were when we were saved. God works in our hearts. He works in our, in our lives, and, and Christ is changing Peter. It will change Peter into who he, want, who, who he will be. You want to see who, who the rock Peter is? Read the first few chapters of Acts and read Peter's sermons, his declaration about who Jesus Christ is to, to, the, to the, all the thousands. You see, Jesus is asserting his authority because only someone with authority has the right to change another's name. Someone you love comes up to you and, and changes your name. What are you going to do? Well, you don't have the right to do that. You don't have the right to change my name. Jesus asserted his authority and said, your name's going to be Peter. Your name will be the rock. You see, these first disciples, Andrew and John, followed by followed Jesus. And then Andrew goes and he, and he tells this joyous news to Peter. We found the Messiah. Come and see. And he brought Jesus, sorry, he brought Peter to Jesus. Now, when we think about this Christmas season, how often is Christ's name on your lips? You say Christmas trees and Christmas lights and Christmas pudding and Christmas cake and Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, but do you see him? Right? You're so distracted by all the trappings of the season that. You don't see him. You don't see Christ. Peter saw Christ. And they saw Christ. But there's also, not only is Jesus' invitation to come and see, come and, come and, come and understand who I am and what I've done, and, but there's also Jesus' declaration at the very end of this chapter. Jesus' Jesus' declaration is that they will see. You will see. And he uses that in a a general or plural sense. Y'all. Y'all will see. You all will see. Notice in verse 43. We'll get there in a minute. Notice in verse 43. The next day. Right? We're up to day four, by the way, if you're keeping count. This is day four of Jesus' first week of, of his public ministry, which culminates... In the first sign, which is the miracle at the wedding at Cana in chapter 2. We'll get there soon. So we're up to day 4. right? And it says the next day, what happened? It says Jesus purposed, or He willed to go into Galilee. And what did Jesus do? Jesus found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. It reminds me so much of verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. It says, But as many as received Him, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, but who were not born, not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor, sorry, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Right? Jesus sought out Philip. He found him. He knew exactly where he would be, and he went to Galilee, and he searched him out. By the way, this was about a 20-mile journey. So it wasn't like Philip was standing next to him, and he said, oh, there he is. Jesus walked the track north from the wilderness of Judea up into the, the Sea of Galilee. He made the trek. You see, Jesus went and found exactly who he wanted, and he found Philip. And he found Philip, and he, what did he say? He said, follow me. Become my disciple. That's the intent of that word. When you, when you ask somebody to follow them, you're saying, come be a learner. Come be a disciple. And by the way, that's a present tense for Jordan. It's continually be my disciple. Don't just come and leave. Be my disciple. We see this call to follow Jesus 20 times throughout the book of John. Follow me. What about Matthew 16, 21, 16, 24? If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? And follow me. 
You see, John is giving us examples of those who believed in Jesus' name. They became children of God. He's also showing that, that God works in people's hearts. God draws them to himself. It's not by Philip, not by his birth, not by his friendships, not by his own scheming, but by what Christ wills. It's Christ determined. He purposed. The word there literally is often translated willed. He willed to go into Galilee and he willed to find Philip and he called him to himself. And he said, follow me. What a great picture of salvation. God wills us, calls us. We were called to him. He works in our hearts. He prepares our hearts by convicting of a sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Holy Spirit's ministry in the world calls us to believe, to repent of our sins and believe in His name. See, John's giving us examples. And, and Philip, what did Philip do? And we see this over and over. Like, is how people come to know Jesus is, is, is His disciples, His followers, go and tell other people. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So so Philip knew these men. Philip knew Andrew. He knew Peter. Now we knew Peter has a home in Capernaum. Later on we find that out. So, but this is Peter's childhood home. It says the city is a small, by the way, it's a small town. It's not really a, a, a really large city in the sense. And by the way, Bethsaida means a house of, of fishing. So what do you think their major industry was there? Right? These men were fishermen. This house, this little potent town, potent town, excuse me, of Bethsaida. Well, he, he goes and what does Philip do in verse 45? Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, he doesn't say we have found the Messiah. Look at the way he says it. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the, the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Right? It wasn't an accident. Philip, Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathaniel. And he says, look, we, we found the one the Old Testament scriptures have spoken about. Moses and the prophets. That's a Jewish way of saying that the Old Testament scriptures, they speak about Jesus Christ. Alfred Edensheim Jewish historian, he says that the Jews themselves, even at this time, interpreted 456 passages in the Old Testament messianically. You see, the messianic ministry of Jesus Christ was predetermined and predicted by God from long ago. Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, we found him, we found the one, the one the Old Testament scriptures spoken about. If you flip over with me a few pages into Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24 this is a particular passage that's always of great interest to me. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus walks with two of his disciples and they engage in a, in a long conversation in which Jesus has hidden himself from them. They don't recognize him as Jesus Christ and he's speaking with them and they're disappointed and they're sad and they don't know what to do. And in verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow. Wouldn't you like to have been there for that Bible study? You see, Philip comes to Nathaniel and he says, We found the one that the scriptures have spoken about. And implied in that is that Nathaniel was a reader and studier of scripture. And so was Philip. Because why would you say, Well, we found the one the scriptures spoken about if you didn't know the scriptures? Well, you look at Philip's response. Or sorry, Nathaniel's response, and and he and he actually makes a a, a little bit of a a, a, a a jig at Nazareth, and he says, uh, "Can can any good 
thing come out of Nazareth? You see a little... Now, we know, we know Philip, or sorry, we know Nathaniel was from Canaan. And these towns weren't that very, weren't very far apart. So you can imagine there's a little bit of uh, intertown rivalry here. And he, and he says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Actually, a very good thing came out of Nazareth. In fact, the only good thing in the whole world came out of Nazareth. And he says, yeah, can, can any good thing come out of, come out of Nazareth? And remember, Philip describes him as Jesus of Nazareth, his hometown. And he says the son of Joseph, just so, uh, just so you know, when he says son of Joseph, he means it in the legal sense. But, but think of it like this, who, who is Joseph? Right? He's a nobody. Right? So here you have Jesus, the, the son of a, of a carpenter in the little bitty town of Nazareth in Galilee. And you could imagine Philip say, Philip thinking like, you know, what's, what's Nazareth? What comes out of Nazareth? And we have a word we use where I'm from called podunk. I don't know if it translates here, but it basically means a small, insignificant place. It's an old uh, Indian term, Native American term, and it means podunk. So you'd say that town's a podunk town. Well, that's, that's, what, that's what Nathaniel's saying. What's this podunk town of Nazareth? Who, who comes out of there? But I love what Philip, Philip says. Philip says what, what we all say to those we're sharing the gospel to. Come and see. Come and investigate. Have an open heart and open mind. When it, when it comes to Jesus' claims, come and see. That's, that's Philip's response. And then we have the miraculous in verse 47. In verse 47, we have a miraculous in the sense that Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. So we have Jesus making a declaration about Nathanael, and he says, Behold, and he says this loudly, and he says, Behold, look, pay attention, there's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit and no guile. He's, he's a Jew inwardly that believed in God because all the Israelites, they either were, uh, well, they all were of Abraham's descendants and they followed the law and so many of them believed that that's what made them righteous. Where here Jesus is saying, look, here comes an Israelite that is a true believer, that, is, that understands his sinfulness, that comes to God in faith. It doesn't just accept his, his, uh, his religious activity as his means of, of redemption, his means of entering the kingdom of heaven. Here's a true Israelite. There's, there's no phoniness in him. He's genuine. He's an honest believer. He's what Paul says in Romans 2, who's a, who's a true Israelite, Israelite on the inside, not just the, the outside. Jesus looks into his heart and he sees his spiritual condition and he does it from a distance. So in reality, if you think about it, Jesus saw Nathaniel. He, he, he did the opposite of what he's been calling everyone else to do. Come and see and investigate. Jesus looked into Nathaniel's heart and he knew where he was spiritually. And you can imagine Nathaniel was just a little shocked in verse 48. And he says, how do you know me? I mean, you could imagine that question. And did someone tell you about me? Have we met sometime before? And Jesus, showing his omniscience, says to him, he answered him. And he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus shows his omniscience. So not only did Jesus know his, Nathaniel's spiritual condition, but he knew his physical location. This is a, a supernatural demonstration of, of Jesus' power, of his divinity. Jesus says, I knew you. Right? That's funny. The first thing I thought about this, honestly, when I was reading this passage, I, I, thought, about, I thought about the prophet Jonah. And it just popped in my head and I started thinking, you know, how preposterous it was for Jonah to believe that he could get on a boat and try to cross the Mediterranean to, to run away from an omniscient and omnipotent God. 
an all-powerful God, all-knowing God, and Jonah hops on a boat thinking that, that he could run away from God. He run away from his mission to go speak to the Ninevites. God is omniscient, and Jesus just reveals a, a, a very small aspect of his divine nature that's been veiled. He sees Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is floored. You could imagine, verse 49, Nathaniel answered and says, Rabbi, this is a great declaration, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are King of Israel. Right, John's writing this, by the way. Remember, John's writing this so that you would believe, so that you would see the declaration of these early disciples, and you would, you would, you would see what their testimony is, and that you yourself would believe. Nathaniel says, Rabbi. He says, basically saying, look, you are my teacher. I'm your learner. I'm your disciple. He's submitting to him. And then he, then he says, you are the son of God. This is a Hebrewism. When, when you say someone's the son of something, you're, you're saying they have the same nature, the same quality as something. Like if you said somebody's the son of the devil, what are you saying? They, they, they have the qualities, the nature of the devil. Remember John and his brother James were called the sons of thunder because they had the quality of thundering about. This is a great declaration that Nathaniel makes. He's, he understands that there's something supernatural about Jesus. He's not a mere man. And he says, you are the Son of God. You are deity. You have the same nature as God. Now, would Nathaniel have understood this fully? Not yet, but he will. But he declares, you are the Son of God. And then he also declares something else. Now, there's no article in the Greek. He says, you are king of Israel. He acknowledges that Jesus is the scripturally promised Messiah, the Christ. He understands that as an Israelite, he is submitting to his king, his God-chosen and God-given king. Not for those in our, in our home groups. It's not like Gideon. Right? He's God-chosen, God-given. He's the anointed king, the anointed Messiah in the Davidic line. person that God has selected. You see, the testimony of, of the disciples is complete here. In this, this first section that John gives us, before he starts digging into all the signs and wonders that Jesus is going to do, basically in the next uh, 10 chapters. 11 chapters. And before he gets into the, the glory of the cross, he deals with the confession and the declaration of Jesus' disciples themselves. They declare through Nathaniel, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. You're the Messiah. You're the coming one in the Old Testament. They declare all these things. They acknowledge who Jesus really is. That's in essence salvation. Right? We, we come and see our hearts have been prepared by the Holy Spirit so we understand our sinfulness and our need for repentance. We come and see Jesus. We, we believe who He is. Right? We believe that, that He's the Son of God, that He's fully God and fully man. He's God incarnate. We believe that He's the Lamb of God who, who sacrificed Himself for our sin, who made atonement so that we could be reconciled to God. We believe that He's the King of Israel and that one day He will return and He will rule Israel and that He will rule this world in righteousness. We believe these things. Nathaniel and the disciples have, have come to Jesus and they, they see who he is. Now, do they, like I said, do they fully understand all aspects of this? No, but they will. They will. And we will by the end of this gospel. Then you have Jesus' declaration. What a wonderful declaration in verses 50 and 51. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to, said to him, truly, truly, I say to you all, it's plural, I say to you all, Y'all, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God descending, excuse me, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He said, do you believe because of my omniscience? Do you, do you believe in me? Do you follow me because of that? Because he knows how fragile their faith is at this time. Because they don't fully understand everything that they're declaring, even though what they're declaring is truth. He's not criticizing his faith, but but he's talking about his limited sight, his limited understanding at this point. He says, look, you will see, you all will see. You'll see so much more. They're going to see miracles upon miracles of Jesus proving and and verifying his message. They're going to hear so much more teaching from their, their rabbi as they learn from him. And then they're going to see his sacrifice, suffering on the cross, and then his resurrection and ascension. There's so much more for them to see and understand. And he said, you will see. And then he ends with a verse, verse 51. And it's an interesting verse. And it's a verse that refers to Genesis 28, Jacob's ladder. And now, both, in both accounts... The emphasis, especially for, for Jacob and even, I mean, sorry, emphasis in Jacob and in here is on divine communication. You see, in Genesis 28, God appeared to Jacob who was, on, who was running away from his family because of his deceit and his, his, his theft of the birthright because Esau wanted to kill him. And God comes to Jacob in a dream and he reassures him that he will be a partaker of the Abrahamic covenant. That he will receive, the covenant will be passed through him and his descendants. He'll receive the land, the blessings, and the descendant seed promises that were promised to Abraham. And God says, I will be with you. In fact, Jacob actually names that very spot Bethel, the house of God. Jacob's speaking with the pre-incarnate Christ. He's speaking with the Word. He's speaking with Jesus at this point. So the, the point Jesus is making is that you're going to see so much more truth. Just like Jacob was able to speak with God, you will be able to speak with God. You'll see that, that access and you'll have access to the things of heaven. It's about communication because Jesus himself and Jesus alone is the revealer of truth. You're going to see. Brethren, what a great promise for these disciples that they're going to see more truth and understand more about Christ. And and they wrote down that truth and we have it now as the scriptures. It's a great promise to us is as we, as we grow in our walk with the Lord, we will grow and we will understand more about the character and nature of God. And we will worship. And we will see our fully our own sinfulness and our need even more clearly for a Savior. And we will mourn over our sin. But yet we will still remember that we've been forgiven and we've been cleansed from unrighteousness. Because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, and he declares, you will see. They will understand far more than they do now. Look, we have seen, and pun intended, we have seen Jesus call these men, these, these fishermen, to come and see. And salvation requires a a seeking soul. Jesus says, if you seek me with all your heart, there you will find me. Those that examine and understand the truth about Jesus Christ. And remember again, once these these disciples had, their hearts had been prepared. Hearts had been prepared. They, They understood their sinfulness. They had confessed it and repented and been baptized by John the Baptist. And when Jesus says, come and see, come and understand, they were were seeking the truth. And he says, come and see the truth. Come and understand me. Come and know who I am. 
my purpose. It's a call for those of us, or those of you that don't know Jesus Christ this morning. Come and see. Come and see who He is. Truly, as the Lamb of God, as the Messiah, as the coming one promised in the Old Testament, as the Christ, as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, as Jesus Christ incarnate. Come and see. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, don't let this Christmas season go by without understanding and seeing the truth about Christmas. That it's a celebration of the incarnation of God Himself. Jesus says that those seeking souls that follow Him with a small measure of faith, He reassures them and reassures us that that we will see so much more because our faith doesn't rest on, a, on religious activity, but rest on the person of Jesus Christ. We will see. We will see so much more. God, these, these disciples, these apostles have, have written down so much about Jesus' life and ministry as we're going to go through in the book of John. And, in, and later on, so much of His commands in the rest of the New Testament. And then His glory even in the book of Revelation as Steve read this mor- morning. Excuse me. There's so much more for us to, to, to come and to look at, to, to see. We will see. My prayer is that we would respond this morning with the joy that these disciples shared when they declared to each other, we have found Him. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that You have called us to Yourself. You searched us out. That You've given us the right to be called children of God. What a great promise and blessing. And Lord, we thank You for Your promise that just as these disciples were to see so much more, that that we're able to see so much from the time of our salvation, that we've understood so much more about You, and yet there's so much more to learn, to understand. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. Help us to have our affections just totally focused on you. Lord, there's so many distractions in this world. So many opportunities to be focused on things that are temporary, even especially during this Christmas season, as, as secular as it has become. But we, your your church, we don't celebrate the worldly things alongside the world. We celebrate the truth. Jesus Christ, you, our Lord and Savior, humbled yourself, born of a virgin, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, truly you are the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. I pray for those that don't know you this morning that, oh Holy Spirit, you would convict in regard to their sin, their lack of righteousness, and the future judgment that awaits. Help them to see clearly that they have a need for you. Draw them to yourself so they would come and see Jesus. Those of us that do know you, Lord, I pray that you continue to work in our hearts. Conform us to your image. Help us to see you with greater clarity that our love for you may ever grow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.